Let's again pray as we prepare to hear a word from the Lord this morning. Father, our attention wanders. And we have so many burdens and so many obligations and, and also so many good things and so many pleasures. And so, Lord, our attention often wanders from you. But, Lord, we are grateful that your attention is always upon us, that you are forever gracious and compassionate, that you, that you care for us and pay attention to us. And, Lord, in this morning... On this day, help us work in us, work through us, so that we pay attention to you. Help us to hear your life-giving word, and not just to hear, but to absorb, to retain, to follow, and to obey. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So this morning, we're wrapping up a sermon series called, I Am Not My Own, and we're focusing especially on on our identity in Jesus Christ, on who the Lord makes us to be. And we've been doing that especially through reflecting on the prologue to the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, on this, on this text that introduces us into the type of relationship the Lord wants to have, to have with us. And you know, if I was preaching this sermon series a thousand years ago in the Mediterranean world or, or 10,000 miles away in Nigeria or Thailand, there would be a different focus. We'd have to talk a lot more about how, how our society and how our, our traditions really push and maybe influence us in ways that are not so helpful for our identity in Christ. But here in North America today, that is not our problem. Here, we always are wanting to declare, I am my own. We want to build our own individual identity. We want to express our identity, and we want everyone else to, to affirm who we are, and, and whatever we feel at the moment determines who who we say we should be and who we want to be recognized as, and we construct that identity for ourselves. I am my own, we say. But it's not working. It's not working. And so in our own lives, and I would say in the lives of the people around us, we see more and more anger, more and more fear, more and more shame even. And yet we're on this treadmill where we keep trying to, to be our own people, to make our own lives, and it just is not working. And so this sermon series is intended to, to remind us, to challenge us, to, to correct us, to bring us to a place where we can see that it is good news that I am not my own, but belong to Jesus Christ. The identity that we need is an identity that we receive from the Lord, not one that we make for ourselves. So that's where we've been the last few weeks. We're going we're gonna to land today by reading more of Deuteronomy 5 than we have up to this point, and then reading a little bit from James chapter 1. I'll warn you ahead of time, this is a long scripture reading. The temptation is always to blast through the long ones really quickly, and I'm going to try not to do that. And I'm going to ask that you try to really pay attention all the way through and to see, to see Deuteronomy 5 here as an expression of the relationship God wants to have with us, the relationship He wants us to have with each other, and the type of people, the type of person that he wants us to be. So hear these as identity-shaping words from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. 
the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord. Because you were afraid of the fire, I did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. And then we're going to turn to the New Testament and read just a few verses from James chapter 1. We'll read James 1 from verse 22 to 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. This is the word of the Lord. So the sermon title for today is Liturgy, and I picked that in part because all the sermon titles were L's in this series, and I needed an L word. But liturgy is also helpful. It's not a word we use that much, but it's a word that has a couple meanings that we're going to play with today. And one, if, if you hear the word liturgy, is probably connected to worship. Liturgy is, is what we do when we worship. We talk about, in worship planning circles, the liturgy, the order of things that we do when we gather in a worship service. But liturgy can also have a meaning of ritual or routine. It can have a meaning of the things that we, that we keep on doing time after time, day after day. And liturgy's most literal meaning is service. So worship, 
routine, and service. And those are going to be the themes we reflect on as we, as we think about how we can shape our identities in the way that the Lord has called us to. So we're going to start by talking about liturgy in terms of worship. And you, may have, you may have heard, just maybe, that there's a bit of a big football game this afternoon or something, right? For those of you not in touch, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, my family doesn't have a particular team we're rooting for, so I'm going to adopt my mom's, uh, my mom's approach and just root for the offense the whole game. So if you're watching the game and the offense does well, I am a happy man. But I'm actually going to talk about college football a little bit this morning. And there's this book, The Righteous Mind, by Jonathan Haidt that I've been referring to a lot during this sermon series. And he teaches at the University of Virginia. And he tells the story at one point in that book of, of what a University of Virginia football game looks like at that campus in Virginia. And what it looks like is that an awful lot of the students get dressed up for the game, and there is a uniform. Men, students, are expected to wear dress shirts and ties, and if it's at all warm enough out, or even if it isn't, they're supposed to wear, they were supposed to wear shorts. So dress shirts, ties, shorts. And the girls are supposed to wear skirts and pearl necklaces. And then everyone heads over toward the stadium, but for about a mile and a half or two miles out from the stadium, there's all kinds of, of parties. There's food, and there's lots and lots and lots of alcohol. And it's not just the students who gather, it's the alumni, and it's everyone who lives in the town, and, and there is this huge party that converges on the stadium, and, and then they all go in, and there's way too much alcohol, as hate puts it, so everyone's a little bit uninhibited. And whenever the team scores, the, the students all link arms, and they have this sort of swaying song that I can't repeat, but it only really sounds good, I think, if you're half drunk, because it doesn't make any sense at all. Wahoo, wahoo, UVA, or something like that. But there's a tremendous bonding that happens every Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon that there's a game at the University of Virginia. And people spend decades of their lives coming back to be part of that again because that's where they belong. That's who they are. That is their identity. And there's been a, a number of scholars of different types the last few years who have pointed out that, that a lot of the ritual around football games looks a lot like worship. People get dressed up in a certain way. They come with, with certain expectations and, and they value that being together and the common cause. They value, in a sense perhaps, they worship the football game, the community, the ritual. Now I suspect that most people come to church with a little less excitement than they go to a football game and, and I hope there's a whole lot less drinking on the way. But it's maybe worth asking a question of ourselves. What if someone from another culture was to walk around after us for a month? What would they say are the things we really value? What would they say are the things that if we put ultimate worth, worth on that, if we worship that, that's what it would be? And what would the evidence of our lives demonstrate that we consider the most important? And I think probably without exception in this room right now, uh, an anthropologist following us around would not say, oh, the wor their worship of the Lord, their relationship with God is the most important thing. I think probably for all of us, we would find that there are actually other things that we spend our time, our energy, our resources on. And that is, that is not a life with great returns. And the Lord invites us to a better life. And what He invites us to is a life that is centered around Him. 
And I thought about working through each of the first four commands here in Deuteronomy 5, and, and those all focus us on the Lord and our relationship with Him in different ways. But I actually want to go back to a well that I've mentioned a couple times before in, that, in this series and, and think about the first four commandments. Think about our worship. Think about our relationship with the Lord in terms of covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. And covenant is not a word that we use an awful lot, but it's, it's a living relationship that has benefits and obligations. It is a relationship that, that gives us life, that brings us into a new place, and we have to do some things, and we receive some things from it. And the Lord has set up, as I think we see here in Deuteronomy and throughout the Bible, He has set up a rhythm with His people, a routine, a ritual, that we need to gather as God's people before Him and renew our covenant again. So this, this Sunday morning and, and Sunday mornings when we gather for worship, this may be the most important part of our week. And so I want to urge you to reflect on what your calendar looks like and are you, are you prioritizing being with God's gathered people to be with the Lord on Sunday mornings? And now I'm, I'm stepping away from the pulpit for a moment very intentionally because whenever I hear a preacher say something like that, I think, oh, you just want more people to come and listen to you, you conceited windbag you. And if you just had that thought, I'm okay with that. Because preachers do have egos, and every preacher wants a bigger crowd and does what they do to get people to come, and so on and so forth. Okay, we've been honest about that. Throw that out. You don't need to worry about my ego. Let's come back to thinking about the Lord, though. And even if you aren't a Christian, give me this assumption for a moment. That the Lord who reveals the Scripture to us, that He is real and that He is truly King of the universe. And then give me the assumption that He has set up structures and times for His people to gather with Him and to have their relationship made new again. Here in Deuteronomy 5, this, this covenant language when the Lord uses it, He doesn't say there was this covenant that got made way, way back then. What the Lord says is, with you, with you who are here right now, I have made a living relationship. With you who are here right now, I have made a covenant and let us live together. And every week, maybe on the best week of our lives, this is not the case, but, but every week of our lives, we let God down. He is unendingly faithful, and we are unendingly faithless. And yet every Sunday, all the time, but in a special way, when God's people gather on Sunday, the Lord brings us back and said, here's the covenant again. And I still love you, and I still care for you. And I am still the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, who brought you out of slavery to evil, and who is going to bring you out of the slavery you experienced to your sin and your brokenness this last week. Every single week, the Lord meets us with that good news and with that relationship that we belong to Him. So we can spend our whole week saying, I am my own, and living as if that were true. And still on Sunday, we meet the Lord God who says, no, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who gave you instructions about how to live, who who again and again renews this relationship, who in Jesus Christ died to fulfill the obligations of the covenant so we could be with Him forever. And so the Lord comes to us and says, I am the Lord your God. And so we can embrace the good news that I am not my own. We are not our own because we belong to the Lord. And so we can 
declare not with dread or with sinking hearts, but with joy, I'm not my own. I don't make my own identity. I receive, I forever receive who I am from the Lord who is faithful. And that language, I am, what, what, that, what that gives us a sense of is faithfulness. That is God's covenant name. It is a name by which he identifies that he has connected himself to us with a connection that we can't break no matter how bad we get. I am the Lord your God, he says to us. And so when we gather to worship, and, and this can be all parts of our lives, but especially when we gather in corporate worship, we gather to again say, I am not my own because you are the Lord, my faithful God. And as we worship there, there are times when things don't work quite right. Worship is never perfect. Sometimes it might feel more like we lose the game than we win the game. But over the course of a lifetime, as we gather in worship, as we hear God's word, as we hear his grace expressed, as we bring him our prayers and praises, the Lord gives us a new identity and reshapes us to be people who enjoy a forever life that starts now. Make one of your liturgies worship. And also, as we think of the next few commands, make another one of your liturgies service. We sometimes call the second six commands the second table of the law, and, and the first four focus us on a relationship with the Lord. The last six focus us on a relationship with each other, with other people. And so often these days, so often these days, we want to belong to ourselves. We want no obligations. We want no need to give to other people. But, but the Lord calls us to turn that upside down and to live lives of service. In so many ways in our culture, institutions and relationships have, have become places where we perform. We want institutions to be platforms for our self-expression. We want relationships and networks and, and fans so that we can build up our own identity. But that... That is a dead-end street. There was a time on a cadet camp out that we all went, and someone brought a football, and, and so a bunch of us kids were playing this game we called 500, and it goes by different names, but there's one guy with the ball, and everyone else is over there, and he throws the ball, and then he yells a number, and whoever catches the ball gets that number. So if he yells 100, you get 100 points. Whenever you get to 500, you get to be the guy who throws the ball. And someone came up with this brilliant idea that we could do bonus and then you could say later what the number was. So it added all kinds of interest to getting a particular ball that was thrown that way. But then one of the cadets figured out once he got to be the guy throwing the ball, that if he said bonus and somebody caught it, he could say five points. And if he said bonus and nobody caught it, he could say, oh, you guys missed it. That was going to be 500. And then in theory, he could be the one throwing the ball forever, right? Right? And it worked for about two minutes until everyone else was like, nope. And he got tackled and the ball got ripped out of his arms and he wasn't allowed to be the passer anymore. But so often, that's how our lives work. We do what we think is self-interested. We think that this is going to benefit us and ha I can cheat the system and everyone look at me, won't it be great? And it turns out that that actually breaks our relationships and hurts us along with hurting everybody else. The only way to have a real, robust, personal identity and to have good relationships is to take on pain for other people's gain. And so I invite you to develop a liturgy, a pattern in your life of taking on pain for other people's gain. 
And I want to give you some examples. We're going to go really quickly through the six commands, and I mean really quickly. And I want to give you a couple ways you could work them out. And I'm actually getting most of this from one of my professors, from Cal Van Rieken, who I think a number of you actually grew up with. But, so if they're bad, his fault. If they're good, my credit, right? Oh, wait. All right. We're going to go quickly through these six commandments. Don't murder. Shovel your neighbor's sidewalk. Or snowblow if you've got a snowblower. But care for other people's good. Don't commit adultery. Give up pornography so that you can see other people not as objects for you to consume, but as people for you to love. Don't steal. Pay your taxes. And take the tax breaks, follow the tax code, but, but pay your taxes. Don't bear false testimony. When you've got a project at work that goes really well and you get all the credit, make sure that your whole team gets the credit because, because none of us does much alone. No coveting. Celebrate. Wholeheartedly celebrate the good things that other people have and get. Live a life. And, and all the commands, they aren't just commands that say, don't do this one thing. They are doorways that open us up into a whole area of life where if we do it right, we can thrive with other people. And if we close that door and don't go through it, then it hurts all of us. These commandments call us to a life of service, and it is in a life of service where we can really live. A game of 500 only works if people take turns, if it's a game, not just a competition. Life only works if it's it's a game of service, not just endlessly feeding on each other. So worship and service. And then one last, one last liturgy, one last routine that I want to invite you into is to declare for yourself. We've talked about relationship with God. We've talked about relationship with others. Now in your relationship with yourself, make a liturgy out of reminding yourself, I am not my own. I am not my own. James 1 tells us that if we, if we just kind of listen to what God says, then we don't really pay attention. We're like somebody who looks in a mirror and then goes away and doesn't even remember what they look like. But if we look intently into the law, if we look intently into the shape that God intends our lives to have and that, that He equips and enables us to have, if we look intently into that, then we find freedom. And then we are blessed in what we do. And I can't promise that the blessing will mean a bigger house and a nicer car and all those things. But I think I can pretty much promise that the more we look into God's law, the more we look to how the Lord lived, the more we look to the freedom we have in Christ, the better our lives will be and the more blessed we will be regardless of what our circumstance looks like. Our lives are built, we as human beings are built to live in certain ways. And if we construct the identity that, that the world wants to give us or, or the identity that maybe sometimes sounds selfishly best, we will break ourselves down. But if we build our identity on the word of the Lord, if we trust in Jesus to save us and we do our best to live in the way that he's called us to live, then, then, we, will ha- then we will have an identity that can endure. It may feel a little rote and a little strange at first, but it gives us life. So a story, a reading, and then we're done. In September 1941, William McNeil is drafted into the army. So he's in the army, and he's at boot camp, and they spend weeks and weeks just marching back and forth. 
marching back and forth with all these different guys who William doesn't know. And, and eventually he starts to think, they must not have any guns for us. Because all we're doing is marching back and forth together, day after day, week after week, and it goes on and on, and there's, there's all these other things that we just keep doing, these rituals, these things that, what is the point? But then a few weeks into it, a few weeks into it, McNeil realizes that he's actually, every step he's taking, he feels this just pervasive sense of well-being, to use his words, that as his unit marches together, he experiences a sense of well-being that he has never experienced before in his life. And he realizes that he's no longer thinking about all those other guys who I don't know. He's thinking about his unit. He is thinking about his people. And as they get better and better at walking in sync, as they get better and better at caring for each other, there is this sense of community and value and worth for him in himself that he has never experienced anywhere else in any other setting. People of God, this is, this is our time to march together. The cadets came in this morning to onward Christian soldiers, and that is our call. Not that we are called to fight other humans, but that we are called to, to battle for what is right, to follow in the way of the Lord, to fight evil in the world and evil in ourselves, and to do it together. And there might be times where you come to church and it feels like empty marching, or you are serving other people and you feel like, why am I having to do this again? I'm shoveling the sidewalk. My neighbor's going to grump because I don't shovel it to his specifications. What, what am I even doing here? But over the course of days, weeks, years, a lifetime, if we march in the way of the Lord, we find that our identity becomes more and more secure. We find that we have a type of contentment and peace and and flourishing and pervasive sense of well-being that you will never get to if you keep insisting, I am my own. So I invite you into the deeper life where, where the Lord of the universe says, I am the Lord your God, and where we can respond, and so then I am not my own, and have that be good news. I'm going to close this morning, and the praise team is going to come up as I'm reading this, but I'm going to close this morning by reading question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, and then we're going to sing a song, I Am Not My Own, based on this text. But I invite you to to receive this reading from Catechism as good news for our lives together. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him.